Romans chapter two verses seventeen to twenty-four. But if you call yourself a Jew, and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and the truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against the stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is the word of God. Good morning, congregation. One of the most viral sermons in this contemporary day is a sermon from Paul Washer, titled "Shocking Youth Message." I don't know if you've heard it. As he explains in another video, Mr. Washer was shocked when he saw a sermon being preached that produced a lot of laughter. And sort of light-hearted pastor among the kids who were in attendance. The jokes did what they were supposed to do, and、uh, I guess at some point the sermon moved on to a more serious matter. The shocking point for Mr. Washer came when the speaker announced the altar call. Mr. Washer estimates about two to three thousand kids responded to the call, which sounds like a victory, right? Sounds like something tremendous. Now, for the, those of us who don't know, an altar call is when the preacher requests after the sermon for those in attendance to respond to the message by making professions of faith in Christ.、And、so, for us to see two to three thousand kids actually respond to such a call, we would figure, what a great thing God is doing. Now, when Mr. Washer saw that a good deal of kids went up there laughing. And in a mood that was in no way consistent with the seriousness of the moment, he was shocked to say the least. Now, when he had an opportunity to speak, he spoke with great passion about what the gospel really means, and the necessity for justification to come by faith and faith alone, proceeding that it had to have come with repentance, which. Speaks to the hating of the things that God hates and the, the loving of the things that God loves, and that would couple with that would would be a growing desire to be holy, not to be like Britney Spears or anyone like that, but to be conformed into the image of Christ. After he said that, the crowd was the crowd was clapping and, and cheering for him. He then turns and says, "I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you." So much of what Paul is writing to the church in Rome, in chapter one, seems to not apply to the Jews, whom seemingly feared God and had His law. I can imagine them affirming what he's saying, thinking that he must not be talking to us; he must be referring to some other people when they spoke of unrighteousness. But when we turn to chapter two, we see Paul take assault on the Jews for their acts of unrighteousness. It was almost as if he was saying. I don't know why you're clapping.、I'm、talking about you. 
We too, as the church far removed from this setting of the letter, are in danger of replicating their acts of unrighteousness by resting in a false sense of security. If we think that as the church and as attendees in the church that we are safe from the wrath of God that is to come, then my brothers and sisters will be in for a rude awakening on Judgment Day. And so today's theme is the foolishness of the Jews in the text is repeated in the church today when the grace of God is abused by the pride of men. The first thing we notice in verse 17 is that Paul is highlighting the uniqueness of the Jews. He highlights the fact that they call themselves Jews, and he does this uh, with a very simple and sober understanding as to who they are. This wasn't simply a matter of recognizing a meaningless distinction, but that among the nations, the Jews did indeed enjoy a special status and a unique distinction among them. Deuteronomy 14.2 says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are of the face of the earth. They were a nation that held the law of God, a nation that enjoyed God in a unique way. And this law of God wasn't simply another vain collection of, of thought or some philosophies that perhaps they derived from these false deities that other nations had. What they had in their possession wasn't a sum of subjective moralistic guidelines or something that they may have just luckily stumbled upon like some hidden treasure. No. What they had was the self-revelation of God's own character embodied in his law. And this wasn't because they were smarter or better than any other nation. If we recall in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, it says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. To be called a Jew held with it a distinctiveness that was clearly evidenced by their appointment by God and the provision of his law. And because they had the law of God, they knew his will. They were able to distinguish between good and evil. Now, we understand from the text that every man has knowledge of God written on his heart so that he is without excuse. But this knowledge that they possessed was special. This was clear. And this clarity is important when we consider the necessity for it. If we all had lives that we could live according to our own standard, then what would be the point? Other nations, for example, ascribe unto themselves gods out of vain superstition so that it might satisfy their suppression of the truth of God. We understand this from the text of Scripture. These other nations simply wanted to do what was right in their own eyes. The necessity for the clarity of the law is evident when we consider the depravity of man. As we looked at in Sunday school, when we worked through total depravity, we see from the biblical testimony that man is plunged into unrighteousness and his need for God 
is to do a miracle in his heart. This is because what is revealed about mankind is that they are like blind men. Blind men groping around for direction. Blind people who were created to honor God and glorify him. They now decide ultimately to do the opposite. Making themselves enemies of God. But the Jews had the law. And with that law, they had the very will of God for their lives. With this law, they were not to be like blind men groping around for direction, but men who with this law could see clearly as to how they were to live before a holy God, to glorify him as they were created to do. We see in verse 19 and 20, a unique calling that was entrusted upon them. Now, we remember from the uh, famous line from Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Well, with great advantages, such as the Jews had, comes great calling. What we see in verse 19 and 20 is that with the law, they were to be a guide to the blind, like a light unto those who were in darkness. To those who are foolish, they would provide wisdom, instructing children and realizing the law as the sum of knowledge and truth that was to be obeyed. They weren't merely just to teach this, but they were to embody this. They were to live this. They were to flesh this out to those who knew no better. And yet, in spite of these advantages, in spite of the high calling and uniqueness designated upon them, foolishness. Foolishness. The Jews acted in foolishness. What is foolishness? A Bible dictionary defines foolishness as this. In the Bible, foolishness is often an ethical concept that goes beyond a lack of native intelligence. Although the fool might be one who acts boorishly or naively or imprudently, he is more particularly one who lacks wisdom, which comes with the knowledge of God. Someone who, in his pride, is wise in his own eyes, but acts contrary to the will of God, and thus does, intentionally or not, what is evil. What then is foolishness? Foolishness is anything that is contrary to the will of God. The word says, it is the fool who says in his heart that there is no God. And so, in the heart of the foolish is a desire to live as if there is no God. The desire to do whatever is in his heart, and whatever it is in his heart he is content with. And that desire in which he finds his contentment is to be God. The charge that Paul levels against the Jews of the text is that like the Gentiles that had no law and did what was right in their own rise, the Jews also, with the law, decided to do what was right in their own eyes as well. With the very self-revelation of God, the things that they know are right, the things that they know are good and true, they decided not to do. They decided to disobey. And it is their pride that done this. It is their false sense of security 
in their uniqueness that has ultimately branded them as fools. With the fact that there are Jews that make their boast as God's people and having the law, they paraded it around as a sort of a sense of entitlement. They had Abraham for their father. Rather, they should have felt the law and the weight of that law, understanding that the weight of that law and the calling that God had placed upon them was to provoke them to be in a place and in a position without any merit in and of themselves, but that they may be provoked to solely rest in the will and grace of God. They were Jews in name. They were Jews in religion. But as John Gill says, no name, no outward religion, nor any outward profession will justify before a holy God. They may have been able to boast in a knowledge unknown to the other nations without the law or the will of God, but it was sinking sand. This knowledge that they boasted in was no true knowledge. For true knowledge of the things of God brings about humility and humble service unto him. False knowledge only puffs up men and makes them self-serving. False knowledge, no matter how true it may be, is indeed false when it is not obeyed. Not false because it's not true, but false because it is not applied faithfully. It is false that it is that false knowledge in which Christ will in that dreadful day of judgment say to the possessor of such, I never knew you. Even judging such persons as workers of lawlessness. And this is because the friends of Christ are the ones who do what he asks. And so it is true of the Jews, it is true with all people. To truly know God is to be known by him. Their foolishness was that in their pride they made the name of God to be blasphemed among the Gentiles. The very babes that they were to be instructing, the very people that they were to be a light to, blasphemed. Were their purpose to bring glory to the Lord, the, the end result was that the results of their pride provoked the Gentiles to not want to honor God at all. Now, I don't know how many of you were moved when we heard about our father's name being blasphemed, but I was. To know that the very God that is, as was spoken about in the prayer, the very God that changed hearts from stone into flesh, the very God that has come all this way to save and redeem us from a life of depravity, for that to be the very God that by my life I would blaspheme. That the very people who need the gospel, who need the truth, who need his word, would be the very people who didn't want to believe or didn't want to reverence this God all on the account of the way that I'm living. All on the account of the way the church lives. Now, before we're too harsh, many of us, I know, reading the Old Testament, look upon the Hebrews and say, at times, what a bunch of idiots, right? Deeply foolish people. We, we 
I'll never forget an occasion many years ago when I was teaching Sunday school class, and uh, there was just a sheer weight of criticism that I had um, teaching these young kids about, wow, I don't know how they could make such a mistake. They, they did this, they did that. Um, for them to come from a place of bondage, for them to come from a place of slavery, uh, to see God enact plagues after plagues after plagues and, and just be in awe of the great lengths in which God had taken to save and redeem his people. The cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night as he's ushering them in. And when they seem trapped, he ends up drowning Pharaoh's army, right? It, it, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's inspiring. It's, it's wonderful. And then you almost can't help yourself but to criticize them. As soon as they get into the wilderness, they're complaining. And complaining and complaining and complaining and murmuring and sinning and doing a whole bunch of stuff. And it's very easy for us to say, these people, this is, this is what you're not supposed to do, guys. Don't be like them. And there's a sense in which that's true. But it doesn't take much long for you to realize if you're living in this earth faithfully, before the face of God. It's only so far you can go before you uh, start to realize that a lot of these criticisms, a lot of these complaints, a lot of these things that you see wrong with them as you're reading the biblical narrative, just a little bit, maybe a few things apply to me. Not everything, though, right? I know you guys are better than me. Our uniqueness, our uniqueness, what can we say about the Jews that we can also say about the church as well. We also, too, as the church of God, enjoy certain advantages. Our uniqueness is highlighted in the fact that we are the called out ones, just like the Jews were. Ecclesia is a Greek word defined as a called out assembly or a congregation. Ecclesia is also commonly translated as church in the New Testament. The calling placed upon the church to be salt and light is, is something that is found in the book of Matthew. And in general, it's calling to an assembly of people who are called out for a designated purpose. And that is that purpose to be a light unto the nations. So that the good works of God are done and are attributed to God so that he might be glorified. Just as Israel was called out among the nations, so too are we also called out to be a light in this world. A light that shines and reflects the glory of God in our lives. And this is a summoning that doesn't come from man, but it comes from God's own word. It comes from God himself, which we know to be true and faithful. And this call comes with a purpose and that purpose is to live holy lives as God is holy. There is a standard there that we must apply to ourselves and recognize is always there. And the beauty of that standard, the beauty of the word, is that it is a guide for us to live our, our lives in a holy manner. Having the word of God doesn't simply mean that we keep it with Mother's China, right? For those of us who remember who China is. Or bury it in the dirt. Maybe we remember that a little bit better. Actually, no. It's before. Uh, it's a long time before Xbox. So now kids don't play in the dirt. What we do, however, is hold dear to it. We don't bury it. 
We treasure it. One of the things that we spoke about in Sunday school today is about a commitment to the word of God, a commitment. And there is a a necessity that comes with saying that you are committed to the word of God. And it goes well beyond hearing the word of God on Sunday. Because a commitment to the word of God means that you're invested. A commitment to the word of God recognizes that I need this word. I need to learn this word. I need to have this word master me. I need to know what it says. I need to know what its contents are. A commitment to the word of God. We understand that as redeemed persons, they are our marching orders. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. The word is meant to be our sustenance. Something that we cannot live without. And, our, and the reason why we live in this manner is because of the calling that God has placed in our lives. He doesn't just redeem us and change our hearts and tell us to fly away and do whatever it is that we want to do. There is a purpose behind the very breath that we draw. There is a reason why our hearts now beat, whereas before we desired to do whatever it is that we wanted to do. There is a purpose that is over and above any purpose that we could designate for ourselves. And this purpose is, is, is coupled with our calling. Our calling is to teach and preach the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. What is the good news of the kingdom? This means that not only must we know our Bibles, but we must also teach what our Bibles say in word and in deed. Not so long ago, there was a saying that gripped people in the church, and it sparked some degree of conversation. The saying was to preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Now, this was by no means a new saying. Some had attributed this saying to Francis Assisi. The problem is, is that with the degree of correctness that this saying conveyed. The point that people advocating for this saying were trying to make was that there was a coupling that existed with the gospel being preached and the gospel being lived, with their emphasis being on it being lived rather than it being preached. The problem is, is that the gospel cannot be preached without words. But the power of the gospel, the sheer beauty of it, which glorifies God, is indeed on display when it is proclaimed by a person who has tasted its power. A person who has been changed. A person who has witnessed the miracle. This is never divorced from the proclamation of it, but it is a common procession from its effects. Those who preach the gospel faithfully are those who have been mastered by it, those who have been impacted by it, those who have felt the weight of the law, the weight of a holy God standing above them, realizing that without any provision, there is no hope. And they preach this gospel not as sales representatives who don't really believe in the product that they're selling but want to look like they think this is the best thing since sliced bread, but rather, they are the beggar who has been given the bread. And go back to tell others who hunger, 
where the bread is. Yet, and yet, in spite of these advantages, in spite of the advantages that the church enjoys, this high calling which we are called to God to perform, we are in the church at times finding ourselves that we are not much better than the Jews of the text. In the text, we see a Paul attack them for boasting in the law and their calling and knowledge as if by some means it was going to ultimately allow them to be saved. As if God in his mercy, since he had already shown them mercy time and time again, would continue to do so even if they weren't doing what they know they should have been doing. Perhaps we presume that because we go to church and sing songs when we're told, that perhaps if we come to Sunday school or even become a member and give tithes to the church, or if we may even be so bold, teach a Sunday school class or two and preach, that God would overlook our willing disobedience. That the more we do, the less we have to do with regards to holy living. Perhaps it hurts too much to be confronted with our inadequacy and necessary necessity for God. Maybe we don't see the need fully to commit to this Christian walk because it's either too difficult or it's just simply not for us. And we think that it's far easier to dress like a sheep and bad like a sheep that the shepherd wouldn't know. That the shepherd who knows his sheep wouldn't recognize who the wolves are and who the sheep are. This is foolishness. This is foolishness. It also reflects a vile pride that inhabits its host. When this foolishness inhabits the body of Christ, what was true of the Jews in the text will also be true of us as well. And in turn, what we see is that the name of God is blasphemed among unbelievers as a result of our foolishness. Now, Desiring God has an article that speaks of, on pride, and it's titled Seven, Seven Subtle Symptoms of Pride. And I'd like to walk through these points, but it's important that I mention that the first sentence of this article is extremely sobering. It says, pride will kill you. Pride will kill you. Sometimes we don't realize how important something is until we face it as a threat. We aren't moved unless something seeks to cause us harm. And, and, and even before that, we may not even be impressed with what it is. But the simple fact of the matter is, pride will kill you. And it will kill you in a variety of different ways. Number one, fault finding. We're talking about foolishness in the church. Fault finding. While pride causes us to filter out the evil that we see in ourselves, it also causes us to filter out God's goodness in others. We sift them, letting only their faults fall into our, our perception of them. It may be that while reading the word or being involved in a Bible study, the fault-finding Christian doesn't receive the word as it should be, as a mirror that reveals the ugliness of their own sin. They would rather use it as a weapon to condemn others before themselves. And the word warns us against such an attitude. 
when it says that we should also first remove the plank from our own eyes so that we can remove the speck in our brother's eye. I've been to many services and have been guilty of it. When the sermon being preached speaks on a topic that you know belongs to the sister, a couple of pews ahead of you, you almost can't help but to say, Amen! Oh, that brother's preaching today. You know they got a word, right? You know what goes to them. And they may hear and know what you're saying. And when the preacher goes and talks about the next thing, you hear them say, Amen! And now it's an amen match, going back and forth with amens. Poor preacher thinking that he's preaching such a wonderful sermon. <laughs> and people are going back and forth. Jonathan Edwards writes, the spiritual proud person shows it in his finding fault with other saints. The eminently humble Christian has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in his own that he is not apt to be busy with others' hearts. The fault-finding Christian is secure in his pride. As a fault-finder, that he or she doesn't realize they are a cancer in the body of Christ. And that's a strong word, cancer. I know many of us have lost loved ones. We, we have lost friends and family. And countless people lose their lives to such a destructive disease. How far worse is the prideful Christian in a body of Christ. Our hope, our security, shouldn't be in our ability to find fault with one another, but our resting in the fact that there is a God that loves you and loves me, and that has called me to build you up as well as you build me up. Iron sharpening iron to the glory of God. Number two, a harsh spirit. Those who have the sickness of pride in their hearts seek, speak of others' sin with contempt, irritation, frustration, or judgment. And pride, whether we realize it or not, is crouching on the inside and belittling the struggles of others. It is cowering in our jokes about the craziness of our spouses, it may even be lurking in the prayers that we throw upward for our friends that are subtly or tainly exasperated with irritation. Again, Edward writes, Christians who are but fellow worms ought to at least treat one another with as much humility and gentleness as Christ treats them. The harsh spirit deals with the suffering and the issues of others from a posture that is false. It is as if there is no mercy or gentleness that realizes that our security does not flow from what others do or what one person struggles with. And this is not to be numbered amongst us. We ought to remember the very grace and the sweetness of that grace that Christ has dispensed upon us 
knowing that if we have tasted such a good gift, there is no reason why we shouldn't share with this gift as we are called to. The third point is superficiality. When pride leaves, lives in our hearts, we are far more concerned with others' perceptions of us than the reality of our own hearts. We fight the sins that have an impact on how others view us and make peace with the ones that no one sees. We have great successes in areas of holiness that are highly visible amongst people so that we're looking like we're held accountable, but little concern with the disciplines that happen and need to happen in secret. This reflects our desire to perform our faith instead of live our faith. This superficiality tempts us to rest in how we look. And the danger is that we think that this is a firm foundation to settle on. It won't be until we realize when the waves and the wind come beating down on our house that the house that we've built on our performance will be revealed to be foolish and that we should have built on the rock of our salvation. Defensiveness, those who stand in the strength of Christ's righteousness alone find a confident hiding place from the attacks of men and Satan alike. True humility is not knocked off balance and thrown into a defensive posture by challenge or rebuke, but instead continues in doing good, entrusting the soul to our faithful creator. Edward says, for the humble Christian is more than the world is against him. The more silent he will still be unless it is in his prayer closet. And there he will not be still. There's a quote from Spurgeon that I simply love. It says, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. The attitude of defensiveness allows for the Christian to secure himself in a fairy tale a fictional tale of his great strength and pride in his abilities and giftings and that those abilities and giftings will always see him through to victory. Pride will kill you. Pride will kill you. Presumption before God is our fifth point. Humility approaches God with humble assurance in, in Christ Jesus. If either the humble or, or the assurance are missing from that equation in our hearts might as well just simply be affected by pride. Some of us have no shortage of boldness before God, but if we're not careful, we can forget the fact that he is indeed God. Edward writes, some in their great rejoicing before God have not paid sufficiently regard to the rule in Psalms 2.11. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Many of us feel no confidence before God, which sounds like humility, but in reality, it's just another symptom of pride. Because in those moments, many times we are testifying that we believe our sins are greater than his grace. We doubt that the power of Christ's blood is real and vital and what results is that we are stuck staring at ourselves instead of staring at Christ. Many of us feel no confidence before God. We may say, how could God love a wretched person like me? And in many Christian gatherings, that may actually 
pass for some type of piety. It may seem like a deep and spiritual person. Oh, wow, he said wretched. He must really think of himself poorly. All right? It may look as if we are totally crushed by our sin. But that's not humility. That's a false, false humility. And ultimately, it's pride. And it presumes that God has to love you depending on you, depending on how you look, rather than the means of grace that he has already provided on the cross. Better to say, thank God that through his son he had saved a wretch like me. Pride also shows itself in our desperation for attention. Pride is hungry for attention, respect, and worship in all of its forms. Maybe it sounds like shameless boasting about ourselves. Maybe uh, being able to say no to anyone because we feel like we, we needed it. Maybe it looks like obsessive thirsting for marriage or fantasizing about a better marriage or a better life because you're hungry to be adored or to be noticed. Maybe it looks like being haunted by your desire for the right car or the right house or the right title at work, all because you seek the glory that comes from men rather than the glory that ought to be belonging to God. Desperation for attention shows itself in in a lot of ambition as well. Not that ambition is wrong. A holy ambition is what provokes us to seek after the things that God loves and to hate after the things that God hates. But many times ambition can be very prideful as we look to climb the ladder because we want the attention. We want the validation. Pride kills, ladies and gentlemen. Pride prefers some people over others. It honors those who are in the world and and people who are deemed worthy of honor. And these people are given more weight in their words and in their wants and in their needs. And there's a thrill that goes through me when, when people with power acknowledge me, when people with power affirm me. We consciously or unconsciously pass over the weak and inconvenient and unattractive people because they don't offer us anything. That's not in the church, is it? We don't do that in the church. We don't do that in a church where everyone should pick everyone up and love everyone. We don't pass by people, right? Because they offer us nothing. They're not Elder Tony, so, well, what's the point of shaking his hand? Right? Tony, you would just say, I'm sorry. First name. Pride. It's pride. The great endeavor of the church as we walk through the book of Romans isn't so that we can say we did it or that we can claim to be a church that's actually doing something that other churches don't do. The purpose is what it's always been, as long as I've been here and far longer than that. It is to create a passionate pursuit for the glory of God. And this is because the advantages of being the church are advantages that we have to flesh out and maximize. They are that we are called out on mission. 
We are to love the Lord and to love others. We don't pass by people. We love people. Pride in the body, however, doesn't do that. Pride in the body kills that. Do we want to be a vital church? Do we want to be a vital church? We ought to love God and love others. Foolishness in the church is evidence by a false trust in works or standing in the body that is misplaced. The only sure and true place of trust and security should be found in the gospel. The gospel. So what is our remedy? How do we prevent ourselves from being foolish? How does the power of the gospel answer foolish behavior in the church? At the core of the gospel message is the fundamental truth that the work done to reconcile us to God was done by Christ on the cross. And that's it. It has numerous applications, but that is the truth. And from that, any temptation to earn right standing with God is crushed. Any attempt to boast in our efforts, no matter how sly they may be, is defeated. It is crushed because the realization is that we can never, ever pay a debt owed to God by our own works or by what we think, who we think we are. Nothing we could do by our singing songs alone could quench the fiery wrath of God against us for our rebellion. Any work or attempt to be secure by our standing or endeavors will, or, or, or attempt to flatter God will simply fail. God is not a God to be bartered with. Wisdom, if the church to be wise is choosing to depend on God in all things, in everything. Wisdom is realizing that the remedy for the issues and affair of life is not to get tougher or to be better, but to cling to the one who is better and is tougher. Foolishness is completely comfortable with being a hypocrite living a lie without any grief of sin. But as redeemed people, we refuse to attempt to make void the advantages given to us, like Israel. But rather, we fall to our knees in repentance. And as we mentioned in Sunday school, this is not just something that we do daily, but every minute, every moment of our day is a moment, an opportunity as long as we are confronted with the word, to be in a posture of repentance before a holy God. And with this humble dependence upon God for our every need, knowing that he is faithful, and in doing this we choose wisdom over foolishness. Our desire as people, as children of God, are to be wise with what God has given us, to consider every advantage that we have, to consider the place that we are in now as a place of uniqueness, as a place of great advantage, as a place of necessity 
Not just for us in our own lives, in our own sakes, but for those who do not know the truth. That we don't live in these pews and live in the word and sing songs and live for God so that we can merely save ourselves. Our hope, our desire, is that not only have we received the gospel and continue to receive it as we live repentant lives before his face, but we would also live those lives amongst unbelievers. So that in doing this, in taking every advantage that has been given to us, we don't look like fools to unbelievers. And that God's name is not blasphemed in front of unbelievers. And so the question is, are we foolish in the body of Christ? Are we comfortable with that? Is that something that you want to contribute to the body of Christ? Or do you want to recognize that the miracle that he does every single day in your heart when you see him in the word, when you recognize him in prayer, is a miracle that would not have happened unless he initiated. Is that a miracle that provokes you to want to live and act in wisdom? That is the question before us as a body. That is the question that we always have to answer. And that is the question that I'm leaving you with today. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, O God, because you have set before us life and death. You have given us your word. You have done a miracle in our hearts. You have changed us from a place of living and groping around in darkness to a place of being able to receive your life, Lord. We thank you, God, for what you have done. Because not only have you done a work in our lives, but you are consistently doing a work in our lives. As we grow in our knowledge of the word, we recognize our dependence of you on you is far more deeper than we could have ever imagined. May we never grow from this place, Lord. May we never move from the place of continuing to dig deeper and deeper and deeper and realize how much more and more and more profound your presence is necessary in our lives. That the very mundane things that we do from day to day still require you to be present. We may have money in the bank account, Lord, but may we not think that we don't have to pray for the daily bread. We may have jobs, we may have uh, things that we feel keep us secure, but may we never stray from the fact that it is by your hand that we have these things. May we not grow foolish in finding and placing security in things, but that we might be wise in building our house on the very foundation, the very bedrock of what is true and what is long-lasting. And that is your gospel. That is you, Christ. May we consistently build on this truth. We thank you, O oh God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.